0: Howdy folks, welcome back to Take It or Leave It, I'm Rob Noxious, and today we're going to be talking about perfection. That was Time by the German composer Hans Zimmer. You've known his work from Batman Begins, uh, Black Hawk Down, pretty much any action movie from the 90s and early 2000s. His protege is an American composer, Harry Gregson Williams, who's done several compositions such as the uh, C.S. Lewis franchise, Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, etc. Uh, and Gregson Williams is also famous for his work on the Metal Gear Solid video game series. But Hunt Zimmer is considered one of the greatest modern composers of all time. His work is in film, television, and he forms his work off of a German base that it's about building to something, like Handel. It's not about starting off with something pretty and then following it all the way through. That's more Roman classicist, your romantic type. Whereas Zimmer comes from a more romantic German background, which is you start off small, and then you introduce elements on top of each other in layers. And this layering allows the listener to appreciate all the elements of the orchestra, from choir to to uh, timpani, to uh, your, your chorus, strings, your wind, your horn, uh, vocals and it allows the whole thing to build on each other. Letting each section not have a solo but kind of express itself for a moment before incorporating almost like a you know a batter you're folding in each section quietly, carefully so that each successive moment in the composition is building up to a moment where everything, all the themes you've been building with each section coming in creates one larger theme together. And the reason why I use this is because I think this is one of those perfect songs, uh, compositions. It is nice to listen to and it is powerful. Although you couldn't hear it, there is a singer in the background who is singing, uh, who is vocalizing in the same chord uh, and using an O vowel (coughs) to add to the rest of the composition of your horn, wind, strings, uh, electrical string with the guitar, and then of course your Percussion, and the reason why I think it's perfect is because it builds that I always like songs that build they build up a theme they build up a memory using your ears as a sounding board for which all these sounds bounce in and it makes you think about things And the name of the song, Time, he takes his time to build the song. But it's also a pun. The song is used in the movie Inception by the same filmmaker who did Batman Begins and etc. Christopher Nolan. And the movie is about the passage passage of time within a dream. That we pass time with our dreams and yet we never truly live. And that's the melancholy of the song, is that although we have all the time in the world to build up the song, eventually it must end. We must come together. Everything must complete, and it must die. And that's the sadness of the end, is that it knows it has nowhere else to go. There's nothing left to incorporate. So after you've incorporated everything, well, now you have to burn it off. You start losing the strings and the whole, First you lose the horn and the strings, go back just to piano, the bass, your roux, but even then you go back to beyond the roux, you go back to the milk, the piano, and the flower, the violin. Perfection is something that we say is unattainable. I don't think so. I'm not going to bring in any philosophy here because everyone has their own idea of perfection and philosophers always argue. I think perfection is attainable, but for only a short period of time. And it is how we manage those perfect moments in time. The balance of the frequent imperfection in our lives with the infrequent or even rare perfection we find. Sometimes we just wake up one morning and the sun shines in the window just right and it's just warm enough, it's not too hot, not too cold. We slept well, we had good dreams, or we didn't have dreams at all. And as we take in the day, we realize that things are just, they're perfect. Because perfection is not a logical construct. We always say perfection is a logical construct. But when you look at those things that people call perfect, there's always an emotion or mood attached to them. Oh, my wedding was perfect. I felt perfect that day. I felt perfect. Perfection is not logical. There's nothing in this world that will ever be perfect to a logical uh, point, to a fault line. Buildings are never perfect. And heck, even while you listen to that, it was a little too quiet. You were listening to speakers hitting a mic. The speaker and the mic have about maybe a foot from each other. It's so a fifteen inch screen, so there's maybe about twelve inches between the speakers and the mic. There were cars, there were people making noise, there was life going on around us. But there was still that feeling, that mood. For me, that song is perfection. I could close my eyes and feel the music. I could feel them working to achieve something. And that's where I think the rub lies. Some people think that you put it in the microwave and it's done in 30 seconds and that's perfect. But have you ever made 30 second food that was Michelin star ready? Have you ever taken anything and put it in the microwave and took it out and said, that's perfection? If you say yes, then that means your definition of perfection is severely flawed. Or you encountered that one thing that does do well in a microwave. There are some things that are perfect out of the microwave. Tomato soup comes to mind. Because all the work was done for you you may laugh at canned soups but you put to just tomato soup add a splash of milk maybe even just a knob of butter put it in the microwave for 15 seconds stir it to incorporate the butter another 15 seconds and it's ready to go maybe a little longer it's faster than heating it up in a pan but other than base things that are literally just crushed tomatoes reduced to a liquid adding in a little you know preservatives there's little in this world that can be perfected in 30 seconds or less you look at some of the most perfect people in human history that we would ascribe perfection to that although their character wasn't great the achievements that they encouraged can only approach God-like, the ability of them to move people, the ability of, of these perfect people, but I wouldn't call them perfect, I'd call them great, and this is an addendum to something I said earlier about good versus great people. Great people achieve perfection for that short period of time where they're the right person for the moment, and the moment is the right moment for them. They seize the day and they accomplish things that no one else before them had ever done or they accomplish things people before them had done but it had been so long that people forgot. And then after them, no one could ever fill those shoes because they were only reacting to what they did. Perfection is a symphony. Perfection is not an individual. An individual will never be perfect. And that's what I think God is trying to tell us. When you read the Bible, or I don't know about the Quran, I've never really read it, but I don't think they focus so much on. But they do. Uh, you, they talk a lot about the Ummah in Islam. And the Ummah is the brotherhood, or, you know, if you want to use a more PC, modern-day term, it's the collective, the society. The Ummah is the collective of Muslims working together in concert to achieve something for themselves. And you look at what they produce when they first stumble into the world. They take Egyptian mathematics, and they prove upon them bringing in new ideas up until this point most of that area was using roman-based math which were positive integers going from one to probably about a couple thousand and of course the romans have to learn million and billion because of inflation but ultimately their system is still a 12-based system Although it is based out of 10, the Roman numbering system goes up to 12 before numbers start getting repeated. And even then, it's really 10. Because you have, I'm just going to use Spanish as the closest approximate to Latin but Latin numbers are probably uno, duo, quarto, uh, treo, sorry, quarto, quinque, or kenk, sexo, septo, octo, novo, deco. Very similar to uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, siete, ocho, nueve, diez. So, novo becomes nueve, octo becomes wavy, I don't know why. Ocho, sorry, it's probably oco. They probably dropped the t because of palatalization. It's hard to go from <laughs> to kht, <laughs> kt oct, It's hard because you're going from a velar, uh, a non-voiced velar, into a into an alveolar non-voiced and while that's not hard because you're going from non-voiced to non-voiced you're still going from the middle of the mouth the palate back to the front the alveolar ridge right behind your teeth some people call it the, t- the pizza ridge it's where pizza gets stuck right behind your teeth there's that ridge where it starts to go up into the back of your mouth into the roof and that's where t- is formed so you take your tongue and you put it right behind your teeth Maybe a little bit back, but right there in the ridge. You don't go further back. You put your tongue in the back of your teeth, and then put air through your mouth. Just, just make a, just make a quick air, and you'll hear. This is also where he forms. Although, is a little further back is almost an intradental, it's almost between your teeth. It's gonna be right there on your teeth, the back of them, T-t-t-t. whereas is a little further back. That's an alveolar fricative, no, that's an alveolar stop, sorry, s- is a fricative, t- is a stop. And that's the difference, t- and s- they're in the same area, but t- stops, whereas it goes on. So that's why it's easier to say X, because you're going, ks, ks. you're going from a stop into a fricative. Fricative. So the air stops for a second, but then you continue it. A little tangent there. And they probably skipped over the tons instead of saying octo, they said oco or Akko. and then of course over time ch becomes because the h originally meant. So it was a hard C, because the C started becoming an S sound. Anyway, it's my tangent. Kinko becomes sinko. But then you go over, getting out of this tangent before I go off on like a whole tangent, you go over to the Arabs. And the Egyptian numbering system is based off 12 roughly maybe a 13 but it is 12 base and based on their numbering system uh, thanks to their numbering system they unintentionally influenced the roman calendar which is the calendar used today based off this 12 base system that's why there are 12 months in a year because the egyptian calendar was solar and they were able to uh, coagulate a 12-month calendar which is why the Roman calendar goes from 10 months to 12 months under the reign of Julius Caesar. And this is long before the Arabs. This is 550 years before Medina and Mecca. And this 12 based system is also used for time. The Roman hour is not exactly defined very well. Uh, The Roman hour is basically arcs in the sky. Not so much arcs in the sky as it's that period of the hour. The Roman hour probably had 21, 20 hours in it. Based on my study, probably about 20 hours. Because the Roman hour is about 90 minutes. A little bit less, a little bit more, depending on what time of day it is and what time in history you are. But the Egyptians, they base the time of day based on arcs in the sky, Ptolemaic, what is now known as astronomy, or and based off the Ptolemaic astronomy is Ptolemaic astrology. It's Greek-based, but they took it a step further than the Greeks, because it, the Egyptians are roughly near the equator, a lot more closer to the equator than the Greeks are, and so for them the sun is a lot more present throughout the year. Their winters are a lot less wintry than in Greece. It snows in Greece. It doesn't really snow much in Egypt. It's near the equator. So throughout the year, because of the tilt of the earth, which is something these people didn't really understand, not very well, and even if they did, very few people would understand it, the 23 and a half degree tilt of the earth forces the equator to be roughly in line with the sun regardless of which season you're in which is why you can go to the caribbean in the middle of december and it'll be 90 degrees out you'll then go in august and it'll be 90 degrees out you'll then go in october it's 90. you go in it doesn't matter at the equator the temperature is roughly the same now you may be more mountainous like uh, San Jose, but ultimately, the closer to the equator you get, the less variance in temperature you get, and this is because they're closer to the sun throughout the entire year. Doesn't matter whether we're at apogee or whether we are at what's the opposite of apogee. Whatever's closer to the sun. Apogee is far away from the sun. Then there's the other one which is closer. I can't remember. And I'm not be bothered to look it up. perigee, so their concept of time will be more accurate. And so they form an hour based off of 12. That there are 12 hours in a day and 12 hours in a night. And an hour is based off a function of 12. 60 divided by 5 is twelve. So they begin forming this idea, probably not very well at this time, but as you go into the more educated period of the Abbasid and oh sorry, Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates, they begin understanding this more and more. That if you split up a clock in a circular thing into twelve segments, you can explain a whole day, a whole night, and every minute of those in between, which is why the clock is perfect. It's one of those inventions that is perfect. It explains with perfection, ridiculous perfection, what time of day it is. And this thing is invented in in conjunction with the, you know, sun clock, the sundial. But the closer to the sun you are, the better and more accurate that sundial will be, which is why the Roman hour varies based on the season. The Roman hour in the winter, they're in Italy or France. The Roman hour in France may be shorter in the winter than the Roman hour in Syria because the sun is hot around longer near the equator, and less away from it. Which is why if you go toward the poles like Iceland or Alaska, the sun disappears for a good 22 hours of the day in some parts of the year. Not a very good place for a sundial. When you only have two hours of sunlight, if that. It's a really shitty sundial. But this clock, this design that becomes known ends up becoming the clock we have today. They figured the day is about 24, 23, 25 hours, roughly around there. We won't find the exact number until the Enlightenment when we begin using instruments that are far more calibrated than the the ones they had at the time, but they make little to no changes. The calendar has not been changed since Gregory the 13th in the 14th century, I think, or 15th. 600 years, we've been using the same calendar. Even with our great instruments, our calendar has not varied much, very minute, and all the changes they made with that calendar have remained. And Gregory's only changed the Julian calendars at every four years we will insert a leap year, yes, except for those number those years that are divisible by four. So 1990 has a leap year. Sorry, 1900 has a leap year, has no leap year, because 1900 divided by four, no, 1900 has a leap year. No. Okay, stop. there's a weird trick they do this okay so the rule that they add to the Julian calendar because leap years were added in years divisible by four and this was to account for the drift of the planet every four years because every four years or so the calendar would drift a day. And they start noticing this in the 16th or 15th century. It's the 16th, 1582. And they start noticing this 1500 years after Julius Caesar introduces it. It's 45 BC or BCE, before the Common Era or before Christ is when Julius Caesar introduces the Egyptian solar calendar to the Romans and this calendar will be used from 45 BC to 1582. So that's 1627 years of drift and 1627 divided by 4 meaning that the days have shifted a whole year. 406.75 so 406.75 minus 362.24. So 44 days are out of alignment, roughly. About 44 and a half days are out of alignment, and everyone's starting to notice. And it had been meant to be fixed for years, but because of the plague and various things in the 12th and 14, through 14th centuries, the change of the guard in England, war in Europe, and then the plague, no one had had the manpower or education to actually address this severe issue. And so they said that years that are divisible by a hundred will not have a leap year but they will have a leap year if they're divisible by 100 and also divisible by 400 so 1700 1800 and 1900 are not leap years they don't have february 29th but 2000 does because 2000 is both divisible by 100 and 400. 2000 is divisible by 400 into five and then 2,000 is divisible by 100 into 200. And that is why 2,000 is a leap year, but 1,900 is not, because although 1,900 is divisible by four, because it is a 100 year, meaning 1,900 divided by four is gonna come into some variation of a number 475, because it ends in a zero. 1900, but 19 oh, sorry, 2000 is a leap year because it's also divisible by 400, and this means that every four centuries, a day is added back to the calendar. So that means every 400 years, we add another day back into the calendar to keep it in alignment. And the reason for this is we don't understand this till the Enlightenment, until the 19th century and 20th century, but the American, sorry, the American day. (laughs) Tell what I'm thinking. The human day on earth, the earth day, is about 365.2422 tropical years. Meaning measured from the tropics or the Uh, the uh, equator, the Earth's day is roughly 365.24 days. 0.24 is roughly 25%. It's 1% off. It's within the margin of error. And what is 100 divisible by 25? Four. So that means every four years, a day is lost in this calendar. And every 400 years, a hundred days is lost. Julius Caesar fixes this with the leap year and with the 365-day calendar. And the leap year adds a day back every four years. But there's a drift happening over four centuries And so they just add a second day on top of the Julian calendar. Every 400 years, we add a second day on top of the Julian calendar to account for this one day that is lost in our calculations. And it's brilliant because you don't have to rework the entire calendar. You just have to, every 400 years, add one day. And that in itself is an engineering brilliance because through hard work and math, you're able to achieve the greatest of all engineering feats. You only have to make a change to the current calendar every 400 years. So that means in 1600, 1600 was the first year in which the Gregorian calendar added a leap year, a leap day, because it was divisible by both four and 100, and they wouldn't do it again till 2000. Do you know how incredibly precise and brilliant that is? You don't have to go playing games with a calendar every six months. And you don't have to do anything every 20, 30 years. And we don't have to like add a random day into March. And okay, well it's because it's the Lupercalia and the season of cancer. We don't have to do all these weird little things. Things like with Easter, where Easter could be in April. It could be in March. It could, I mean, shit, it could be in February. We don't have to do that. They created a calendar that they would only, the, the people who made it, if they were young enough, they would see the first leap day in a year divisible by 100, but not divisible by Four hundred, and that is sixteen hundred. About eighteen years later, they would never see that leap day added again, because from sixteen hundred to till till two thousand, a lot of things happen. From sixteen hundred to seventeen hundred, the French and English fought several wars, Europe changed, the English fought a civil war, some people claim it's a revolution. The Americans come into their own. And then the next century, the Americans found their own country and the whole world changes. Adam Smith writes The Wealth of Nations, creating the idea that through our own selfish self-interest, we will help others because if we help others make money, they will help us make money, and then we benefit together. Capitalism. You have Johann Wolfgang von Goethe creating the Romantic Movement in the same year, 1776, writing... You know, The Sorrows of Young Werther about a young kid who falls in love with an older woman who's married, and he commits suicide when she won't love him back. Creating the German term Sturm und Drang of Romanticism. That love is more like a storm cloud with thunder and lightning. It shakes our very presence. And then the Romantic Movement starts off in Europe and the Transcendental Romantic Movement in the United States. China goes from a tiny colony uh, uh, split between various different interests in the Chinese to becoming a trading post for the Europeans. From 1700 to 1800, America becomes a country and they fight a war to liberate themselves with the Declaration of Independence written the same year as Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations and Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther, making it a perfect year. Some of the most amazing things were created in 1776. And then shortly thereafter, the French Revolution, Napoleon. And then you go into the 1800s and the 1900s, the Industrial Age, the U.S. Civil War. The springtime of the peoples in 1848 and 1849. The destruction of monarchy and the creation of republics and democracies. Tearing down things that were accepted as fact in 1600. And then you go into the 20th century with the world wars, death, destruction. The falling of the home, the failure of the church. People who would have been crucified or even burnt at the stake for questioning the church in 1582 do so willingly and happily in 2000. Atheism was punishable by death in 1582. It's a First Amendment right in 2000. And so you see, therefore, that the concert of peoples, that groups of people creating things together is what creates perfection. Perfection is not an individual thing. Perfection is what other people infect upon others. Their ideals force people to accept that maybe we can strive for something better. But we have to do it together. Perfection is only achievable by us working together. Not about dividing each other into little groups. Well, you're gay and you're lesbian and you're bisexual and you're transgender. And you're a woman and I'm a man and you like to wear clothes and women's clothes. I don't like to wear women's clothes. You're a smoker. I'm not a smoker. You're a drinker. I'm not a drinker. You like iPhone. I like Android. You're a Mac user. I'm a PC Windows user. Heck, I like Linux. I like tablets. I like smartphones. I like computer laptops. I like desktops. I'm not a big fan of Italian cooking. I prefer French. Well, you know what? I'm Italian. I prefer Italian. I don't like French. I speak English. You speak Spanish. I work. You don't work. I have wealth. You're poor. We create all these divisions in the modern day. and these divisions stop us from reaching a chorus a concert a concerto what some would even call an assembly or even call a symphony i'm 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 forgetting my word orchestra And what is the etymology of orchestra? It's from Greek orchestral, from orchestra, orchestai, meaning to dance. There are many things that could benefit from dancing. What is a basic dance? Well, the basic dance is man and woman. Men and women like to dance because it's part of pair bonding. But men and men can dance and women and women can dance too. It's not just a sexual endeavor to pair bond the sexes. It's also just pair bonding for friendship, to bring people together. And orchestras, are designed to create music that lets everyone dance, and to move their bodies. But let's substitute music for philosophy. A good philosophy brings all people together. You look at Christianity, it's an orchestra of ideas instead of notes, thoughts instead of themes. instruments instead of people. Everything working together, achieving their own role. Just as Plato said in the Republic that each their own role, each their own design. You look at Myers-Briggs and Kersey There are the four tribes of humanity. The artisans, the people who make things with their hands. Painters, construction, sculptors, architects. Although architects kind of bleed over into engineers. But ultimately, people make things with their hands. Physical engineers, they're the ones who move mountains. They're the ones who dig up dirt. They're the ones who build roads, bridges, paintings. They make music that move your soul. They created the very computer that I am recording this audio on with the software that creates the ability to do so. And they also created the computer or other device that you're listening to this on. Because ultimately, you eventually have to take a digital input or an analog input and turn it into a digital output. But then that output that starts off digital has to be re-rendered analog. My voice is recorded by an analog microphone. It is a physical object that has to record my voice. I work in VoIP, so this is very well understood to me. And that microphone is not digital, it's analog. They may say it's a digital microphone, but still it is an analog piece of hardware. It has to capture my voice that is produced by a non-functioning machine. My body may be a soft machine, but it is not a machine. I am a living person. And so they have to take these noises and render them back into a digital framework. The digital framework is then transmitted to you into your ears via another analog output a speaker or headphone and so therefore it has to go in reverse it has to be translated from digital back into analog so that your analog ear can hear that's a symphony if i ever heard one that is a total end to end point structure analog to digital digital to analog from my microphone to my computer, the software, through the internet, front to your digital computer, to your analog speaker, into your analog ear. That takes a lot of work to accomplish. To create these computers, it takes thousands and thousands of man hours. To create the computer we have today, the first computers were in the 40s, and they were glorified calculators. they ran off bulbs and then he moved on in the 60s and they used base languages such as basic or fortran and then we created c and then you have unix and then from unix you go into all the other ones but ultimately it took 70 years to go from a glorified calculator So the calculator is just an app on your computer. Your computer does a lot more calculations than just 1 plus 1. We're here to do the math. We're going to do 1900 divided by 4. For your computer, that's simple. The ALU, the logic unit, for them, 1900 divided by 475 takes no processing power. It's a base application. It's division. It has to do no work. The computer spends more time rendering the graphical application of your calculation into the calculator app than it does on 1900 divided by 4. 1900 divided by 4 is less than probably 4 bytes of processing power. Not a whole lot of calculation required. It's 1900 divided by 4. You take 1900 and you divide it by 4. And you go into floating point, which was difficult 40 years ago, but today is quite easy. Because it took us 40 years to get there. Someone had to spend hours, multiple teams of people had to spend weeks, months, years, decades, perfecting floating point. Floating point, just imagine 1900 and then add a decimal point and then add numbers after that decimal point. Anytime you go from an integer which is a clean number like 1900 and then you go into a decimal like 1900.75 that's a floating point number. 1900.75 doesn't exist on an an integer line. It's neither negative nor positive. It is Well it's positive, yes, but it is also not 1900. It is 1900 in the scale of .75. meaning it is 75% of 1900. So when 1900 reaches ni- 100% of 1900 is 1901. And that's floating point, because we don't think about numbers in terms of 100% of a number. You think that 1900 is the full 100%, but you can work it in reverse. Maybe 1900.75 is three quarters of 1901. That 75% added to 1900 is not 1900 anymore. 1900 is long past. It's now 1901 minus a quarter. And there you have the Latin way of looking at hours. If you look at Spanish or French, they talk about 345 as 4 minus 15. Or 4 minus a quarter. It's a quarter of the hour before 4. So they don't say three forty five in French. They say cat moi quote. I think Yeah, for a quarter to the hour, you say moins le quart, minus the fourth. So you would say quatre moins le quart. So four minus the quor- the, the uh, quarter, so it's 345. A quarter of an hour is 15 minutes, minus a quarter of the hour from four is 345. We don't talk like that in English. We say 345 or 15 till or a quarter till. That's what they think about. Perfection is not in individuals. Individuals are imperfect. If you look at all the people that we would claim are great individuals that are close to perfect of the 20th century in the 21st, A lot of them have severe flaws. FDR, well, he cheated on his wife and he also was an invalid from polio. You look at Martin Luther King, cheated on his wife, achieved great things. You look at Reagan, a little too conservative for some people, but still achieved great things. You look at Trump, has achieved great things, but has a severe behavioral and attitude issue that causes many people to dislike him just because they think he's a jerk, despite the fact that he's achieved more than any of the last four predecessors. Take that or leave it. You can't argue with his success. You can only argue with his behavioral and attitude issue. He's flawed as an individual, but we're all flawed. Do you want perfect Romney and perfect Obama? Where they're perfectly groomed, they look nice, they got the nice looking family, and everything looks just perfect, right? But they're not perfect. Romney had binders full of women, and he didn't take on Obama for the very thing that he should have, the healthcare law. And he had no balls when the media bullied him into a corner and let them take advantage of him. Obama, he just kind of let it happen. He didn't go on the attack, he just took his opponent sticking his foot in his mouth and let bygones be bygones. People are always imperfect, but it's about what imperfect people do to inspire others to achieve things. They don't go out there and say, you're a lesbian, you need to vote for me. They say, you're American, you need to vote for me. You're human, you understand what I'm trying to say. This goes beyond where your condition in life is. This is not about fighting a war or fighting a battle. This is about things that we all agree upon and achieving those things we agree upon. That's where FDR, Reagan, Julius Caesar failed on this. He gets stabbed. He doesn't play himself well. Augustus achieves where Julius Caesar doesn't. Napoleon does a good a good job here. His problem is he gets too aggressive in war, which is irrelevant to the discussion. Perfection is achieved by individuals inspiring others to join their movement. Whether it's just a trombone trying to join the rest of the group or a person wanting to live for something better than themselves. When you look at all the greatest religions on the planet, Islam and Christianity, they preach something that is beyond anything. It's beyond race. It is beyond thought. It is beyond philosophy. It is beyond Wealth, status, social, ladders, people of all groups follow these religions because they go beyond it. They have found a perfection, something that agrees to all of humanity. It's not just a a thought, it's also a feeling, it's what makes you feel good, and it also makes logical sense, and so those two married together are the human condition logic and emotion, masculine and feminine. The two of those dancing together in an orchestra, trying to achieve something greater than some tiny group that doesn't matter. No one cares about 0.0000001% of the population that likes to cross-dress, no one cares. What we all care about is can we afford our health care? Can we love the ones we love? Can we be there when they're sick? For me, if two gay people are getting married, well, that makes sense. Maybe not the Bible, but emotionally that makes sense. They're happy, they love each other. And if one of them got sick, shouldn't their lover, their love, be there for them and be able to inherit their wealth? That makes sense, logically and emotionally. Yeah, they love each other. That person took care of them. So therefore, they should inherit. And legally or logically, yes, that makes sense. But when you get into all these little tiny arguments are about dividing people for no reason, they're just about dividing people. You look at this recent lynching thing that happened in Chicago. The guy made it up. He wanted more money. And through his greed and stupidity, he went and put MAGA hats on Nigerians. And had them strangle him and beat him up for money, so that he could make a statement. That's just dividing people. And then not only that, think about all the black gays in the world who actually, actually do get killed because of this. And he's making it up. He just made it up because he wanted attention. He wanted money. He wanted power. He wanted whatever. The hell he was doing. I don't know. Guy's fucking idiot. You're just sitting there and you're like, well, think about all the gays in the world who get prosec- persecuted. They're still. You go to Saudi Arabia, if they find out you're gay, they just kill you. It's punishable by death in Saudi Arabia. No problem from the mainstream media. Saudi Arabia and all the Muslims, they're great people. They're all good people. They still kill the gays because they're bad people. Gay people are bad in Islam. But here in America, things are different. And the hypocrisy is starting to grade on people like me, who want to be liberal. But all I see of the liberal party is fascism. They want to force people to believe what they believe, and if you don't believe it, they'll just take your job, and they'll make sure that you end up impoverished. And they'll throw their puritanical, self-righteous, smug judgment and guilt upon you, that you're judged guilty. You, before the court of public opinion, are now guilty. Go and suffer. And the rest of the country's like, okay, it happened like 40 years ago. Who gives a shit? My mother, I've never seen her more agitated than during the Kavanaugh hearings. My mother believes in feminism. She's a woman who has achieved more than any other woman I've known. I've known a lot of women who have achieved things, but my mother made... More money than any woman you know. My mother made millions of dollars on her own with no help from my father. My father always backed her up and said, go do it. Go make your money. And she went out there and did it. And it was her work, her thoughts, her abilities that did it. My father never pulled connections, never did anything. My mother did everything for herself. She worked. She built it. It took her 20 years to do it. And she did it. And now she manages most of the empire that she has achieved, rightfully. That she worked hard for. That you want to steal money from her hard work to give to people who aren't even people in this country. They're not even citizens. And then you want to go castigate someone who disagrees with you. And she looks at that and sees her sons in the same boat and immediately she got ticked off and called the woman who accused the man mrs blazy ford an unkind word it rhymes with bunt because from her words she has been abused she has been propositioned she has been harassed and yet she still achieved far more than any woman around her. My mother is a saint in my eyes. She is not capable of doing wrong. She has done everything for herself. She has done everything for her husband. She has done everything for her children. She has done everything for her family. She has never stopped being compassionate and caring and kind. And to look at some of these women accusing men of shit that happened 40 years ago, whether it happened or not, just making it up out of thin air, or not. It was 40 years ago. If you can't get over it in 40 years, then you're a lesser person. You are weak. And you shouldn't be allowed to hold power because the weak don't know what to do with power other than to punish their enemies. And that is the lesson I learned from my mother. And she told me that exact thing, that you always be kind to women. You treat them with compassion and respect and you treat them the way you want to be treated. But when they don't treat you that way, you give back to them what they give to you. When they treat you with cold, you give them coldness and kind. When they give you warmth, you give them warmness and kind. You do not give people what they don't deserve. But those people truly suffering, you always care for them. Those people truly hurting, you always care for them. You always help people who really need it. And not just because it feels good, but but because it's perfect because not only does it feel good for you, it actually gives them the same feeling. I could give billions of dollars in taxes to the US federal government to help solve poverty and they'll put it into the military budget and to the social security, which goes to the elderly and I will help no poor. Or I could give to charity the same amount, and I will actually help people. I could give all my money to the federal government, the government will say, oh, we're going to help the poor. No, they're not. They're going to build a giant Navy, they're going to build a giant Air Force, and a giant military, and whatever left, they're going to give to the elderly, or to people who aren't even citizens of this country. They shouldn't be here. They came here looking for an easy buck. And I give to charity, because that money actually goes to someone who's truly suffering. And if you don't give to charity, then you're wrong. And that is a true judgment, because giving to the poor from your own pocket, some bum living on the streets comes up to you and says, I need to eat, you give him five bucks, and say, go to McDonald's, get some food. Because that's all five bucks you can afford. I can't give you a hundred bucks. Or you give money to the soup kitchen, or you give money to a good charity. Don't go to the Salvation Army. Uh, 90% of the money you give to the Salvation Army goes to their burgeoning uh, bureaucratic class, <clears throat> just like it does the U.S. government. The majority of the money you give to the government in taxes goes to paying off bureaucrats, paying their stupid bill, so they can sit around and play on Facebook all day. I give to a real charity. A charity that helps the poor. I don't just give to give. I give to produce results. I want the homeless to find home. I want to have the hopeless find hope. I want the starving to eat. I'm not going to give it to some company that's going to take my canned goods and sell them off and then turn around to give shit to some Nigerian. I'm going to give the money to a charity that takes my canned good and actually sends it to Nigeria so they can eat. I actually want to feed the Nigerians, not pay some, you know, nobody sitting around pulling a $30,000 salary so they can go over there and make nice with the natives. I want my canned goods or money to actually go to helping the poor. I, I don't give a shit about your little message. Nike can suck a dick and i don't care about your little corporate message that we stand for the lgbt and blah, blah blah you sell an iphone apple it's a 1200 phone the people you're talking about can't afford your stupid 1200 phone and and not only that apple but your 1200 phone sucks it it disconnects from wi-fi randomly for no reason who knows It's probably because of the intel modem i have i looked at my my model but ultimately you're full of shit, and I don't care about your beliefs. I'll still buy your product because it's a great product, but I, I don't. You're a corporation. You're there to make profit, not make a political statement. And if you could stop making political statements, that'd be great. I don't give a shit. You make a shoe, it's a shoe. You put it on your shoe, on your foot. Nobody cares. The only people that care are so blindly stupid that they're like, oh, well, you know, I'll buy Nike because they believe in the LGBT movement. Did you know that uh, no matter whether you're gay or straight or lesbian or transgender or male or female, uh, there's still only two sexes? And the male foot and the female foot, it doesn't matter how you identify, Uh, the Democratic female will wear this with with uh, with a size four shoe will wear the same size four shoe as a Republican woman. So a Democrat woman and a Republican woman will wear the same size four shoe. There's no difference in shoe size between Republicans and Democrats. There isn't, there's zero change. She has a size four, she has a size four. They wear both the same size four shoe. And so if your company actually had a product that was different along those class lines and you had some sort of you know, angle on it, It would make sense, but when you make a size 4 women's shoe and it fits every woman regardless of their race, sexual orientation or whatever bullshit they want to claim there are, uh, I think I'm a man even though I'm a woman, uh, you still wear a size 4 women's shoe because when you go to buy a size 4 men's shoe it's going to be too big for you because men's feet are larger than women's feet and this has nothing to do with your sexual orientation It has everything to do with the fact that you were born a woman and there's nothing you can do to change that, take it or leave it.